I would like to speak to you tonight on a topic of great things. This is the second time this year that I am bringing to you something that I have learned this school year. So I'm gonna introduce you to a missionary, you may or may not have heard of him. And we learned of him, Joel and I, in our curriculum this year. So this is the second message that we have learned from fourth grade curriculum this year. So we are learning so much, right? I'm, I'm passing along my fourth grade education to you all. So tonight, I want to introduce you in the Great Things message to Englishman William Carey. He was born in 1761 and died 1834, and he is almost certainly the most well-known missionary in Baptist history. He has been called the father of modern missions in the English-speaking world because of his 40-plus years as a missionary to India and the role he played as a missions apologist. Carey was converted while working as a blacksmith's apprentice as a teenager, and then he was baptized by a Baptist pastor in 1783. Carey pastored a village church, but because the church was unable to financially support his family, he also worked as a grammar school teacher and a shoe cobbler. He was a voracious reader who became very interested in literature about foreign lands, especially because he loved Captain James Cook's travel journals. So this curiosity about other lands slowly became a spiritual concern for the salvation of foreign people. Carey increasingly mentioned unevangelized nations in his sermons, and he wept when he discussed those who had very little access to the gospel. When Carey attended the 1785 meeting of the Ministers Fraternal Association, he was invited to propose a topic for the pastors to discuss. So Carey proposed this whether the command given to the apostles to teach all nations was not obligatory on all succeeding ministers to the end of the world, seeing that the accompanying promise was of equal extent. So his belief was the Great Commission applied continually until the end of the world. That was not what they believed at that point. Carey had come to believe that the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20 was a binding command on every generation of Christians. John Colette Ryland, who was the father of John Ryland Jr., publicly rebuked Carey at this meeting, and he called the young pastor a miserable enthusiast. <laughs> Sounds like a wet blanket, all right? So the topic was not discussed that day at all. They nixed it right there. But in May of 1792, Carey published a pamphlet entitled, here's the title of the pamphlet, An Inquiry in the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. Right, that was the pamphlet's title. I'll read it one more time. An Inquiry in the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathen. This was a manifesto calling upon the particular Baptist, which was, that was 
their, that were their names, instead of like Southern Baptist, their names were particular Baptist. So it was calling upon them to engage in foreign missions. Later that spring, Carrie was asked to preach the sermon before the 1792 meeting of the association. His text was pulled from Isaiah 54, and this is what it says. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. And that's how he preached that they should extend their borders out into foreign missions. In this sermon, Carey argued that believers must expand the territory of the kingdom by taking the gospel to foreign lands. And the sermon, which was the perfect follow-up to his pamphlet, culminated when he urged the association to form a mission society, exhorting them to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Though no action was taken that same day, in October of 1792, a group of 12 pastors formed a society that they did name the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. And they later shortened it to the Baptist Missionary Society. <laughs> That was, I wouldn't even want to see the acronym. of That's such a huge name. All of the men were poor pastors, though, so the sum that they raised to start the Missionary Society equated to about $23 in our currency today. Kerry himself was too poor to contribute, but he became one of the Society's first two missionaries that they sent out to a foreign land. He discovered during this time that he had an amazing gift for learning new languages. How convenient was that? So during his life, he learned dozens of languages and dialect, and he used his incredible talents to achieve his life's ambition of making a difference. He translated the complete Bible, the entire Bible, into six different languages and portions of the Bible into 29 other languages. That's incredible, right? Incredible. This is in the late 1700s, early 1800s. It's just incredible work. So in regards to his life in India, William Carey spent 41 years there without furlough. His mission counted some 700 converts in a nation of millions, but he himself had laid an impressive foundation of Bible translations, education, and social reform. He has been referred to as the father of modern missions and India's first cultural anthropologist. His teachings, translations, writings, and publications, his educational establishments, and his influence in social reform are said to have marked the turning point of Indian culture from a downward spiral to an upward trend. Carey also has at least 11 schools named after him all over the world, including one that's somewhat close to us, William Carey University in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So if you ever pass that, you will now know the gentleman behind that name. 
an article written by Ryan Griffith entitled, Expect Great Things, Attempt Great Things, says, these six words fueled the transformation of global missions and on a smaller and more personal scale, the vision and direction of my life, he said. I don't remember exactly when I met William Carey, but he has haunted my life since my junior year of college. Like many college students, I had taken a long and winding path before committing myself to membership in a local church. But when I found a church home, God opened a river of grace to me and launched perhaps the most transformative period of spiritual growth in my life. One tributary was a providential encounter during my senior year with a set of excerpts from Carrie's pamphlet. I read excerpts of the inquiry that Carrie had written, and as with many 18th century writings, the title was intimidating, but what I found inside was captivating. In addition to review of global missions from the apostles to the present day, Carrie had compiled statistics on the state of global evangelization on every continent. Remember, again, this was the 17 and 1800s. Most powerfully, Carrie concisely captured the beauty of the gospel before addressing nearly every excuse that could be given for not taking up Jesus' commission of making disciples of all nations. Carrie was puzzled that multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. Love for the global glory of Jesus and for the good of our fellow man, Carrie argued, obligates us to proclaim the gospel in all places. Surely it is worthwhile, Carrie concluded, to lay ourselves out with all of our might in promoting the cause and the kingdom of Christ. Mr. Griffith continued, Carrie's words struck me to the heart. I had given so little thought beyond my own self-centered provincial concerns. Shockingly, the task of gospel proclamation to the least reached and the unreached was something I had hardly ever thought about. Mr. Carey showed me that my vision was not as big as scripture's vision of the global glory of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus worthy of the praise of all peoples? Yes, he is. The great commission, as had been said, is not the great suggestion. The task of gospel proclamation was the Christian's duty, and therefore my life's mission had to be altered. Mr. Griffith closed his article with this. To live for Christ meant to put his global glory as my great aim, no matter what my vocation. Sister Melanie Schock taught me the concept of the week between. In this, she refers to the week between Christmas and New Year. That is the week that we are in now. This week should be one of reflection of the closing year and preparation and anticipation of the year that is about to come. A week to slow down, a week to receive guidance, and a week to hear a word from the Lord in preparation for the coming year. So in preparation for 2024, I would like to talk 
just a bit about purpose. I feel that it is so important for each of us to find our individual purpose. No matter your age and no matter your walk of life, you have your own purpose. Um, and one way to do that is to seriously consider your talents, your abilities, how God has wired you, how he created you, because that's part of it, what you enjoy, because God is not going to ask you to minister and have a purpose in something that you dislike, right? He's not going to ask me to go tend other people's gardens as a ministry when I can't keep much alive. I keep people alive, but not really plants. So he's not going to ask me as my purpose to tend other people's gardens, right? So things, what, what you would enjoy, think about what you enjoy and what you're good at. And then you think about how is all of this connected to the kingdom? Because it really is all connected. There's no disconnect between the parts of our life and the kingdom. He will show you your purpose. If you are serious about it and you want to know, he will make it very clear to you. But you do just have to sit and give it some thought. Because your purpose is there each and every day of your life. It doesn't just automatically show up one day and it certainly doesn't disappear on you. But your role and your purpose are not the same thing. My roles here at our church are not my purpose. I do use my purpose in all of my roles, but my roles are not my purpose. Scott's role in the automobile industry is not his purpose. And Mindy's role in the clothing industry is not her purpose. Are they in God's will for their life right now? Yes, probably so. I can't answer that. They can. And are they doing what they need to be doing? Yes, probably so. But if both of their jobs ended tomorrow, do they still have purpose? Yes, because their roles are not their purpose. The roles in life can be used to accomplish God's purpose. Can God use our roles for his kingdom? Yes. Of course he can. All of our roles can be used to glorify him and to show his light to others. But your current job, your current role, your current situation is not your life's purpose. Because, as I said, what happens if we lose that job? What if we move and relocate to a different part of the country? What if someone in our life that's connected with that role passes away? Then what happens? We don't lose our purpose. A role may change, but our purpose does not. Brother Terry Schock says, pursue your purpose and then adjust your lifestyle. Never pursue your lifestyle and then adjust your purpose. That is very good, and, and I'm gonna read it again because you, you need to internalize that. Pursue your purpose first, and then adjust your lifestyle around it. Do not adjust your lifestyle and adjust your purpose to fit it. It's the other way around. Purpose first, kingdom purpose, then lifestyle. 
So I would love for each of us to take some time and put some serious thought and consideration towards preparing to be used by God in 2024. Because it is possible that we could not be used to the extent God wants to use us if we don't do some preparation on our part. What talents do you have that you could allow God to use? What are you good at? What do you enjoy that could be used for his glory? Church leadership and pulpit ministry are not the only types of ministry in this kingdom. In fact, ministry outside of these walls is of the utmost importance. Thinking of those around the world who needed to hear about Jesus was what caused William Carey to become so passionate about a foreign land and about a missions work. So he prepared by learning new languages so that he could translate the Bible and communicate with other nations. Are there things you can do to prepare yourself, to prepare your heart, to prepare your life to be used by God? Or are you too concerned and too consumed by the wants and needs of yourself and your own family that you have no time and no energy for anything outside of your own four walls? Your family is a priority. Yes, I believe that, and I'm, I believe, don't, I'm not saying that it's not. However, we can become so caught up in the hectic agendas of our daily life that we leave no room to prepare for kingdom work or to do the will of the Father. We can spend our days on things that are so temporary and forget to spend time on the things that are eternal. Let me tell you a historical account about the importance of preparation. In 1911, two groups of explorers set off on an incredible mission. Though they used different strategies and routes, the leaders of the teams had the same goal, to be the first in history to reach the South Pole. One group was led by Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen, and you'll see him there on the screen. Ironically, Amundsen had not in originally intended to go to Antarctica. His desire was actually to be the first man to reach the North Pole. But when he learned he had been beaten by Robert Peary, then he changed his goal and headed towards the South Pole. And North or South, it didn't matter to him. He knew his planning would pay off. So before his team ever set off, Amundsen had assessed the coming challenges and he had painstakingly planned his trip. He studied the methods of other cold weather experienced travelers and he determined that their best course of action would be to transport all of their equipment and supplies by dog sled. So when he assembled his team, he chose expert skiers and dog handlers as his teammates. His strategy was simple. The dogs would do most of the work as the group traveled 15 to 20 miles in a six hour period each day. That would afford both the dogs and the men plenty of time to rest prior to the following day's travel. Amundsen's forethought and attention to detail were incredible. He located and stocked supply depots all along their intended route. That way, they would not have to carry every bit of their supplies with them the whole trip. 
He also equipped his people, his team, with the best gear possible. Before he set off, Amundsen had taken the trip in his mind, carefully considering every possible aspect of the journey, thinking it through, and then planning accordingly. And it paid off. The worst problem they experienced on their trip was that an infected tooth that one man had, and it had to be extracted. That's pretty simple if you think about your going to the South Pole. And here you see Amundsen and his team. That was when they raised the flag on the South Pole, December 14th, 1911. The other team of people was led by Robert Falcon Scott. He was a British naval officer who had previously done some exploring in the Antarctic area. Scott's expedition was the antithesis of Amundsen's. Instead of using dog sleds, Scott decided to use motorized sledges and ponies. So their problems began when the motors on the sledges stopped working only five days into the trip. The ponies didn't fare well either in the frigid temperatures, of course, of the Antarctic. And so when they reached the foot of the trans-Antarctic mountains, all of the animals had to be killed. As a result, the team members themselves ended up hauling the 200-pound sledges, and it was arduous work. Scott hadn't given enough attention to the team's other equipment either. Everyone on the team developed frostbite, and they became snowblind because of inadequate clothing and goggles. The team was always low on food and water. The depots of supplies were inadequately stocked, too far apart, and poorly marked, making them difficult to find. Because they were continually low on fuel to melt snow, everyone also became dehydrated. Making things even worse was Scott's last-minute decision to take along a fifth man, even though they only had enough supplies for four men. After covering a grueling 800 miles in 10 weeks, Scott's exhausted group finally arrived at the, at the South Pole on January 17, 1912. There they found the Norwegian flag flapping in the wind and a letter from Amundsen. The other well-led team had beaten them there by more than a month. Scott's expedition to the South Pole was difficult but their trek back was even worse. Scott insisted that they collect and carry back 30 pounds of geological specimens, more weight to be carried by the already worn out men. The group's progress became slower and slower. One member of the party sank into a stupor and died. Another, suffering severe frostbite, purposely walked out into the blizzard to keep from hindering the group. Before he left the tent, he said, I am just going outside. I may be some time. Scott and his final two team members made it only a little farther north before giving up. They died 150 miles from their base camp and only 11 miles from a supply depot that could have possibly saved their lives. We only know their story because they spent their last hours updating their diaries and writing letters.
Everyone in this photo died soon after it was taken. These are British explorers standing at the South Pole in January 1912. The photo marks the finish line of a race into the unknown. Two teams, one British, one Norwegian, trekked 900 miles into brutal territory and had to get back to safety before winter hit. And at first glance, this looks like a victory photo for the British. Except that is the Norwegian flag. And it only gets worse from here. Robert Falcon Scott was a meticulous planner, and his dream was to be the first person to reach the South Pole. He and his English team of explorers and scientists had been conducting research in Antarctica and collected years of data on seasonal cycles on the continent. These lines show what they estimated average temperatures would be throughout the year, with summer ranging from around 30 to negative 10 degrees Fahrenheit and huge drops beginning around April. Remember this chart because later it will help us understand Scott's decision making. Scott planned to use pony transport for the first 425 miles across the Ross Ice Shelf, shoot them at the base of the Beardmore Glacier, and finish the rest of the journey on foot, which included a 125 mile hike across the top of the glacier, 350 more miles to the pole, and all the way back again, all while hauling hundreds of pounds of equipment. Using ponies and brute strength made sense to Scott at the time. British explorers had used this method to haul equipment during an earlier attempt on the South Pole. Plus, the English didn't have experience with the other good option, dog teams. And they believed man-hauling was the surest way to make the tricky climb up the glacier and onto the polar plateau, where the South Pole sits. It was hard, slow work, but the route they were on had reached the plateau before, and it seemed to be worth the effort. But Scott's team wasn't alone. Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen was camped nearby, and he wanted to get to the pole first. The Norwegian team, all of them expert skiers, knew how to travel in cold conditions. And to make matters worse for the English, Amundsen had dogs, and he knew how to use them. News of the Norwegians' last-minute bid worried Scott, but he was still optimistic. Amundsen had started about 60 miles closer to the pole, but was taking a route not yet proven to be passable. Coming against an unknown obstacle or falling into an unmarked crevasse could end his attempt prematurely. But that's not how it happened. By the time Scott reached his goal, Amundsen's flag was there waiting for him. The Norwegians and their dogs had comfortably reached the pole five weeks earlier and were almost back to their starting point by the time the English arrived. Scott and his team were heartbroken. They took this photo outside of Amundsen's tent the day they started their long journey back. Scott wrote, left a note to say I had visited the tent with companions, Bowers photographing and Wilson sketching. We've turned our back now on the goal of our ambition and must face our 800 miles of solid dragging and goodbye to most of the daydreams. This is where the trouble really begins. It's mid-January in this photo, still the height of the Antarctic summer. Told you this chart was coming back. According to their research, the team had about three months left before temperatures on the Ross Ice Shelf, the last leg of the journey back, would drop to deadly levels. That left plenty of time to make the long trek on foot. But this isn't what happened in 1912. This is that average line again, and these are the temperatures Scott's party endured that summer. Consecutive days of temperatures around minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Those conditions at prolonged exposure are not survivable. The first man died here. 
He collapsed and soon went comatose following several falls on the glacier. The next man died about a month later, after a crippling frostbite in his hands and feet began hurting the team's progress and their chances of survival. Nearly unable to walk, he left the tent and sacrificed himself to a snowstorm. The last three, including Scott, made it here before getting trapped in their tent by a blizzard, just 11 miles from the supply depot that would have saved their lives. And so eight months later, their tent still packed around with snow, their bodies inside, they were found, never made it back home because their planning and their preparation was not what it should have been. And so upon his arrival home, Roald Amundsen said, I may say that this is the greatest factor, the way in which the expedition is equipped, the way in which every difficulty is foreseen, and precautions taken for meeting or avoiding it. Victory awaits him who has everything in order. Luck, people want to call it. Defeat is certain for him who has neglected to take the necessary precautions in time. This is called bad luck. Mr. Amundsen knew the success of their expedition had nothing to do with luck. There's no such thing as luck, neither good nor bad. And so as you think ahead and you prepare for 2024, please don't think about the upcoming year in the sense of, I wonder what my luck will be for this year. Preparation is the key, not luck. So thankfully, we don't have to shoot our horses or walk into a blizzard to die because we're a hindrance to the people around us. But however, what kinds of things are figuratively dying because of our lack of proper preparation? Dreams can die because we don't prepare for them or we don't wanna put in the work for them. Opportunities around us are missed daily because we don't slow down to give them enough thought and prepare our hearts to be used by God in those opportunities. Preparation implies that you have to do the work ahead of time. No one else can do it for you. And preparation can look like all sorts of things. Maybe it's learning a new language, like William Carey did, so that you can communicate with others. Maybe it's building a community of people around you that enjoy the same hobby that you do, and in that, you share Christ. Maybe it's saving a little money in your monthly budget so that you can give to missions or Tupelo Children's Mansion or Lighthouse Ranch for Boys. Maybe it's making your daily prayer life a priority so that your heart is tender to see and notice the needs that are around you. God wants to use you. He created you with a specific purpose and he has a perfect plan for your life. And that perfect plan does include blessing you, but it also includes using you for the kingdom and for his glory. But here's a fair warning. Being used for his kingdom and for his glory does not mean you will have a perfect life that has no problems, no failures, no disappointments, no heartbreaks. Unfortunately, no. We still live in a world where the effects of sin still touch us. We live in a world where people die, where people use us for their gain, where lies are told, where trust is broken. 
but we cannot allow those things to derail God's plan and purpose for our lives. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've noticed a recurring theme, it seems, over the last few months. It seems that many of the messages have encouraged us and prompted us to actually do something. They've not been passive messages where we just sit back and allow something to happen to us or just intake the word and let it sit in our own hearts. It's been get up and do something. We've been talking about rolling up our sleeves and being the ones doing the actions. Even two weeks ago when I spoke, talking about sharing the peace. You're not just keeping the peace for yourself. You are sharing your peace with others. Matthew 6, is a good example of this. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek is a key word here. This is an action that we must take, an action that we must do. And two other words in the Greek definition of seek are desire and inquire. We should desire the kingdom of God to be first in our lives. And we should inquire of the king, what does he want in our lives? In a portion of a video, Brother Terry Shock said, there's a reason why it's called the book of Acts and not the book of intentions. It wasn't just them repeating what the king said. They went and they did what the king said to do. Talking about the will of God is not enough, he said. We must do the will of God. And Jesus, who is our example in all things, prayed before his crucifixion. John 17:4 records that he says, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. If he is our example, then that should be our goal also. Now, our work will not be completely finished until our time on earth is done. And I hope no one's time on earth is done soon. However, hopefully there are many, many days when we can lie down at night and say, Lord, I have glorified thee on the earth today. Lord, I let your light shine brightly through me today. Lord, I was your hands and feet today when I brought a meal to someone in need. Lord, I gave glory to you today when a coworker asked about a situation in my life. Lord, I shared your blessings today when I knew someone was in a financial struggle. Lord, I welcomed your peace in the room today when I allowed a friend to simply cry on my shoulder. And so in closing, I would like to circle back around to William Carey's message. The purpose of his message was captured in those unforgettable words. And these were the words that had caught me when Joel and I learned them in our pace. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. William Carey told his peers the following, Christians must expect great things, and not only must we expect them, we must attempt them. No matter how small the beginning, he said, no matter how complicated the task, in the power of the Spirit, under the authority of the risen Christ, we can have the absolute confidence in the success of our mission. 
So let's break it down into two parts and look at expect and attempt. To me, expect in this sense means things that are out of my hand, things that are out of my control, things that I cannot change on my own. I can't heal anyone. I can't change the stock market and the interest rates. I can't pour out God's spirit on the nations by myself. These are things I have to leave in God's hands. I can expect great things to come from him, but those are things that I cannot do on my own. On the other hand, attempt refers to the things that I can do. I can share peace wherever I go. I can share joy to those around me. I can give out kindness like candy. I can learn a new language or a skill just so I'm a blessing to the kingdom. Everything we do doesn't have to be for our own benefit. It can benefit the kingdom. I can invite my, my family and friends to church. I can fast and pray to further my dedication and my commitment to Christ. So as we close tonight, would you take some time this week, this week in between, and give some serious consideration to 2024? How can you prepare to be used for great things? What might God be pleased to do here in our modern day if we truly expect great things and attempt great things? Would you all stand with me? And I think it's important to have both. I think if, if we only expect things from God and we don't want to do anything on our part, that's very selfish and almost lazy because he can do them. He doesn't have to have us. He doesn't have to have you and me working in the kingdom. He could do it all by himself if he wanted to. But that's not his plan. He molded each of us in a fashion and he purposed each of us to have a specific role into that puzzle, into that masterpiece of the kingdom. And then on the other hand of that, if we want to do it all ourselves and attempt all kinds of great things, but leave out God in the equation, we're setting ourselves up for failure. We're setting up our own little kingdom on this earth, and that is very dangerous too. So it takes both sides. We should expect great things from him and attempt great things for him. And they're going to play some music tonight. I know we don't have the altars, but I just wanted to give you a little extra time. If you want to, uh, as they say, if you want to go home by way of the altar, if you want to just spend a few minutes in prayer and say, God, I want to consider, I want to seriously consider 2024. What can I give to you? It doesn't matter if you're 15 or 55 or 75. You have something to offer the king, and you have things that you could do for the kingdom. How much do you want to do great things for the king and for God to do great things here in our church, in our community, in our state, in our nation, and in our world? So as they play the music, God bless you tonight. But please, if you don't mind, take some time where you are. Come down to the front. And let's talk to God for a few minutes about our upcoming year.